that's who you look for is the people who could be gardening it could be beekeeping it could be sailing it could you know it, it running whatever it is if i want someone who's going to geek out on whatever it is that they're passionate about Hello, and welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast, where you'll hear from thought leaders all around the world in a wave of goodness and progress well underway that almost no one knows about. In this podcast, we'll introduce you to people who are fundamentally paving the way for a better world for us all, and they will give you hope for the future many, many practical ways you can use to handle life's ups and downs because these thought leaders have faced them. But mostly, they're going to give you insights every week that help you make a leap or two of your own. So I'm Dr. Linda Ulrich, founder of Ever Widening Circles, where since 2014, we have been writing thousands of articles and giving people thousands of links to goodness and progress, to an amazing array of things that are happening in the world that are not getting the coverage, going completely uncelebrated. So here, we've been talking to thought leaders like that are in that wave, and we're sharing those conversations with you now. So today, I'm going to speak with Jordan Schwartz. Jordan was the founder of a company that did event. Oh, he's going to have to tell us a little bit more event and trade show work for 13 years before the pandemic hit. And he has an amazing story of how business can flourish by solving problems with a focus on team culture. It's really an insightful journey for us all that he's been on. And he uses a philosophy he calls hive mind. He has for, for many, many years. So he's going to share that with us too. And this is probably the secret of his success through this ref patch in history. So Jordan, welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Yeah. Jordan and I had a, a, a crazy phone call when I was speeding 80 miles an hour down the highway between Illinois and Vermont a couple of weeks ago. And I have thought about you about a hundred times since then. There's so many things that we talked about in that conversation that seem obvious now as strategies, but <laughs> you've been on a heck of a journey. I I have. I have. I mean, I... <laughs> Not quite sure where to start with it. I mean, just a little background on the the kind of the most recent piece of the journey. So, you know, as you mentioned, my company built apps for conferences and trade shows, and we've been doing it about 13 years and and was a mildly successful business, but but wasn't wasn't all that I wanted it to be. And when when COVID hit, we had this existential crisis, right? I mean, we, if you're, imagine serving conferences and trade shows where people get together when the pandemic hit, every one of our contracts was gone. Every one of our customers disappeared overnight. And, you know, we, I thought about just wrapping up the show and, you know, returning whatever money we had in the bank and, and kind of riding off into the sunset. But we, we got together as a team and, and we kind of did some brainstorming and we were able to make a fast pivot into serving virtual events. So we took some streaming technology like Zoom and, and things like that and melded it into this experience that we had already built and allowed these trade shows to go on to continue as virtual events. And so people would go to the website and use the app to watch the conferences and to meet with other people and do all the things that they couldn't do in person anymore. And it was a a big success. I mean, we went from 
20-person company to a 150-person company in just a, a few months. And, and it was because there were so many companies out there that relied on putting these events on. I mean, it was their membership were needed to meet with each other. They needed the certifications, things like that. And so it, it was an incredibly exciting time. And I mean, I felt good both about, you know, having this kind of successful business, but also being able to provide jobs for all these people in the event industry that were suddenly had been unmoored by the pandemic. And, you and grew, also, right? You yeah, grew, yeah, your we company grew, grew. Right. We grew from 20 people to, a, like I say, I mean, 150 or so in just a few short months. And there were people who spoke the language of the event industry, who walked the walk. They understood what what was in the hearts of the people who were putting on the events because they already had that experience. And we were able to just kind of load them into this new way of doing things and and help everyone out. But, you know, you were talking before about this, the idea of the, the hive mind and I think how we were able to be successful and so if I kind of wind the story back a little bit, yes. 25 years ago, something like that, I, I was in graduate school for psychology, and I read an article in the Whole Earth Review by Kevin Kelly. He, he actually went on to found Wired Magazine and kind of yeah. has a whole illustrious life after that. But at the time, he wrote this article about the hive mind. And what it explained was the notion that a colony of individuals acting according to a very simple rule set can manifest an intelligence. So just like your neurons in your brain, none of them think, none of them are individually intelligent, but they are connected and they pass signals back and forth according to this kind of simple rules, neurotransmitters, electrical signals, and the reinforcement happens and it creates your mind. And you can think of a beehive or an ant colony or any kind of colony like that as doing the same thing. So uh, ant colonies and, and beehives, they can solve problems. They can learn. An ant colony can distinguish between two sources of food and decide which one is better, even though no individual ant ever visits both sources. Beehives will learn where the good sources of honey are or, or pollen or nectar and will teach the whole will learn it. And I just thought that was such a cool idea. And so I ended up, I got beehives because I wanted to see it in action. And that was just an enormously rewarding experience. I kind of sit outside the hives and watch them come and go. And you learn, it's a much more, it's a very complex interaction they have with, I mean, I, I tend to think of bees as they fly, they get the nectar, they go back to the the hive. But in fact, they have guard bees that kind of sit at the front of the beehive and will frisk the workers coming in from the field, make sure that they're allowed in and pass them in. They'll kind of frisk them with their antennae. And there's the waggle dance. <laughs> the waggle dance, exactly. They'll base when one finds a honey source, that that bee will come back and do a little dance. And it it's based on the position of the sun and some other things like that. And it can the other bees can watch that. And then they'll go and visit the same source. And if they like it, they'll come back and they'll do the same dance. And it gets reinforced. And then all the bees are doing the same dance. And it, that the hive has learned where this honey source is and where the, the nectar source, the pollen source. And they'll, they'll do things like if, you, if they're too short on one particular 
role. So they have nurses and guards and workers who harvest in the field. If there aren't enough of a particular role, they'll just shift roles. And there's nobody telling them what to do. I mean, we have this idea of a queen, but the queen is kind of the, the genetic mother of the hive, but she's not issuing orders. It's not like, all right, you, you're going to be a worker now. You, you're going to go be a guard. It's an emergent property of the hive that it learns how how to behave. And, you know, something that when we were talking last week really kind of clicked in my brain and crystallized something that I've been thinking about for a while. You, you were talking about biomimicry. And I don't know if you want a definition of that you want to provide. Yeah. So one of the things, one of the many things you and I connected on, I have bees too. <laughs> I'm not sure I told you that, but. Oh, no, I don't uh, you did. Yes, yes. We have four different <clears throat> hives. There's the really nice hive and the three crabby ones. Oh, we could go on. Uh, so biomimicry is one of these fields that we are very, very interested in at Everwinding Circles because it it so much speaks to our future. Maybe someplace that we have to go at, as a last resort when we've tried everything else, but Biomimicry is a field of engineering and design that looks at nature to solve human problems. So let's, you, you could, the best story about the, uh, what biomimicry is for ordinary folks like me is that the bullet train, you know, the bullet train was going so fast and it was shaped in such a way that it created a sonic boom. And that was, of course, disruptive to all the communities that it went through. So they had to fix this problem. And one thing led to another and they discovered that the end of a kingfisher's nose is shaped in such a way that if we shaped the front of the bullet train like that, there would be no sonic boom. And so the bullet train is a classic example. If you look at a picture of the bullet train and, and a kingfisher, you're going to say, oh, <laughs> that's the source. So when uh, one of the things that we love about the whole concept of biomimicry at Everwinding Circles, it's such a holistic way of looking at problem solving. It really does take into account 3.8 billion years of R&D that Mother Nature has done to get things right. And I think that that's what you're doing when you're talking about this hive mind that we can use this, this self-organization, this, this way that if we have a shared purpose, then we, then we'll all find our role in getting there, you know? Right. So please, you go, what's your definition? of Yeah, that, I mean, that, that's exactly where I was going with it, that in the example, so after we spoke, I went and I did kind of watch some, some uh, TED Talks and, and such on biomimicry and they all they mostly took this uh, engineering perspective, like the, the bullet train example and right. using the, uh, the way that dolphin skin is uh, built to build more efficient swimsuits and things like that. Yes. But it seems like those same, the same principles can apply to more psychological or metaphorical uses. And so when I was a kid, I used to read a ton of science fiction. And I would kind of lie in bed at night having these kind of 13-year-old big thoughts, yeah. right? And, you know, I think, what would it be like if an alien intelligence tried to talk to us? Like, would we be able to communicate with it if it thought yeah. so fundamentally different? Yeah. And, and I think about the hive mind is, is essentially when we try to communicate with a hive of bees, it's exactly what we're doing. And I'm not going to go up to a beehive and say, you know, hello, my name's Jordan. I, you know, I'm software, but I can say to it, I mean, you know, harm. And I, I communicate that to it by the way that I walk and the way that I interact with it. And I kind of the way I impinge on its senses and it can learn that I am not a threat to it. And so if you think about 
the different colonies that we have in our lives, it's, you know, there's a very small level, our family might be a small colony, right? And it has its right. own interactions or right. my company was, it was a colony, right? It had all these people working together, um, having their interactions and reinforcing ideas and passing ideas around. And, you know, other companies that we worked with were countries. I mean, everything you can think of all these different levels of or, or different units of a hive of a colony that each will have their own personality. And I, right. you know, you said when you were talking about your hives, you said what? One of them, yeah, two we of them are nice one, and one's grumpy. Yes. We, well, one is really nice. You can lawnmower around it. I can even lay with my head about one foot from it. I like to do what I call sitting with these. But the other two, Chuck gets one pass on the lawnmower and they will chase him. If he tries to make a second, they'll find him a hundred yards away. So those your hives actually have a different personality. Yes, yes they do. They're they're they have different minds, and so you know when I was building my company, we grew incredibly rapidly. Right, I guess yes. I said we went from twenty to one hundred and fifty people a very short period of time. That was way more than certainly I could have taught everyone what to do. I mean, I was right. dealing with that growth and there were just more people than I, I could kind of uniquely interact with and train and things like that. But I was very lucky in that the people that we had, we had a, we had a good personality. We had a good personality. Yes. Right. That is so great. I just, I just want to pause there for a minute and reinforce that is that a culture, like when we look at business culture, we all have notions about what that is. Here's how you eat lunch. Here's how, where you park. Here's, you never violate that parking spot, you know, or this is how we give feedback, or this is how we receive pack. There's, there's those parts of a culture. But what you're talking about is something much bigger and more closer to our individual hearts, I think. Yeah. What happened in our company as these as the new people came on board, is that the previous employees and the people who had been there for years were just, they were fantastic about kind of welping, welcoming everyone, creating a culture of, of helping. I, I, I'm kind of I lack a better word for it, but there was, you know, we knew that everybody was new. And so we established this norm early on of ask questions. There's, you know, no one is expecting you to know things yet. Everybody is new here. Almost everyone was new, yeah. right? And so people people ask questions. It's how do I do this? And that first class of people, right? The, the first wave of people very quickly became the veterans. And they had, I think they had internalized that culture of helping. helping. And I so when the next wave of people came in, they just, they, they pass it on. They're like, this is the way we do things here. I'm going to do what I was shown, which is, you know, offer to help. Like, oh, it looks like you're struggling a little bit. Do you understand that? Do I'm going to spend a little time showing you how to do it? And then that became the dominant pattern in the whole, in the mind. Yeah. You know, we were kind of stumbling around there for a better word than helpers. But I tell you, I think that's where we're going as a culture. I've been saying, I think that, you know, every day people tell me they're turning off the news and they're disconnecting from social media because there's not enough helpers there. There's not enough thoughtful people who are measured, who think about what they're saying before they start tapping away, you know? And I think in this kind of times, I, it was Mr. Rogers who used to say that his mother would say in, in tough times, 
look for the helpers. And if you created a culture like that, intentionally or accidentally, but I do think it probably comes back to your character, Jordan. (laughs) I know you're a modest guy, so you're not going to admit that. But there was something about your way that taught the first employee that taught the second, that taught the third. Give us, a, now that's a part, important part of your story that I want not to skip over is that you, you worked for 10 years at Microsoft, a big culture, and then started your own business. What, 13 years ago? What, what was it? Yeah, yeah, it was about 13 years ago. That's right. And what I remember about your story was you started it kind of conventionally in that first year, but then now this was 12 years ago, you went to a pretty much virtual workplace. 12 yeah. years ago. I can't even right. imagine what that was. So tell us about that transition and why you made those decisions and then how you went from one employee to another to another with this this because this virtual culture and problem solving through thinking about relationships. Because another thing I remember you telling me is that you've been home every day of your 12-year-old son's life. Yeah. Yeah. And that so the the reasoning behind going uh, going pure remote was twofold. I mean, number one, I right around that same time. So I, I started the company 13 years ago and I have a 12-year-old son. And being there, I didn't want to go to the office at eight o'clock in the morning and come home at seven o'clock at night and have an exhausted dinner and then repeat it the next day. I want I wanted I wanted to be there with him. I wanted to just to, to to have a relationship with him as he grew up. And so being able to work from home was 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 the way to do that. It also meant as a small growing business that we weren't limited to people who lived within walking or driving distance from where we happened to place our office. We had the world. And so we had place from the very beginning, we had employees in Spain and Romania and Brazil and all over the world. We kind of choose the best. Our talent pool was as large as it gets, right? Yeah. But the challenge, especially when you start to cross time zones, is how do you create a culture? I, I didn't, I mean, I, I want to distinguish this. This wasn't a case of we hired a company somewhere to develop our software for us and you know, wrote up the specifications and sent it off to them. We used, you know, originally it was uh, Campfire, which was a predecessor to Slack. It was you know, before Slack existed, and, but it was a chat room. And we would be in it every day. And eventually we moved to to Slack. And I was very deliberate about the kinds of enforcing and encouraging the kinds of interactions that I wanted us to have that would create a culture. So often what would happen, especially with new people, is they would join the team and they would have some question. And well, who's going to know the answer to this question better than the guy who started the company? So, and I don't want to look like an idiot. So I'm not, I'm just going to ask, I'm going to ask the Jordan, I'll ask that one guy what the answer is and he'll tell me. And then I, I, no one else will know that I didn't know the answer and I get it, get my answer quickly. And they, I mean, it would become a joke that about when they realized that I would just, I refuse to answer. I would say, can you ask this again in one of the public chat rooms? Because I wanted everyone to see I wanted everyone to participate together. And part of it was mechanical. I I knew that if this person had the question, odds were that three other people might have the question as well, and they could see the answer. And I could save myself time by answering the question once instead of, you know, three or four times. But I also knew that if they were to 
know each other, if they were going to trust each other, if they were going to build relationships with each other, they had to see each other. They had to see each other. I mean, eventually, visually, you know, once we we adopted Zoom, but just they had to see each other talk and have those those moments of they're not asking me a question, but I can see them asking someone else a question. I start to get a sense of their personality. I I can start to anticipate what they're going to know and what they're not going to know, where they're going to need help. And that, I think that ended up being instrumental to creating this culture of helping. Yeah. Uh, Because someone would ask a question in a public channel and it became the norm. You see a question, you you answer it because that's what happened to you when, when you asked a question Mm -hmm. and so I think, you know, if you go kind of back to this idea of biomimicry and using the idea of a hive mind as this metaphor for understanding the organization and the interactions, you can think about, you know, your neurons, they have these neurotransmitters and that's, you know, then dendrites and axons, whatever they, this is the way they, they talk to each other. And you need to have a healthy flow of information between as many nodes as possible so that that those healthy patterns get reinforced so that information flows, so the information gets replicated, so that if you end up losing a particular neuron, it doesn't matter, right? It's all part of the, the whole. And so I think the exact same thing applies to to organizations, both a company like mine, but a, a neighborhood, a country, uh, any any group. I absolutely love this way of thinking. So one of the things you see me writing from time to time, I I don't like to interrupt. I love my guests to just flow in the conversation. But I wrote down about five things while you're talking there. Okay. So the first one I've noticed is that by doing that, what you did with not answering questions and having people bring it to the group is that you made everybody involved in the success of everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I mean, they did it because they cared about each other. You know, I think we often will try to reduce people's behaviors to something that is ultimately self-serving. You know, we'll talk about, well, you know, if you help other people, it makes it more likely that they'll help you. And that's why people do it. And I don't know, maybe maybe it's true, but I, I prefer to think that people help each other because they they want to and oh, okay because it makes them feel good fine I will, we'll, I'll, I'll give you that and so yeah they we we created a culture where it was kind of normative and expected and fulfilling and rewarding to help other people and so you could see as I mean, when you answer somebody's question they go thank you like, oh, just great yeah. a little little dopamine kick. Okay, but something that's true in this culture you created, I think, is that you managed to make raising your hand. Okay, so I have a daughter who's very, she's our CEO for Everwinding Circles, and she has done a lot of work in the in education related to the message that we're trying to get out there. And she was talking to this very high-level thought leader one day about education, and the this gal um, informed her that kids don't raise their hand in class anymore. Did you know it's not good? I mean, there are kids that raise their hand in class, of course, but there's a there's now a culture of raising your hand in class is considered a vulnerability. Like you don't want to admit you don't know something has become way more important than it used to be when we were kids. Hmm. So with that in mind, I think that translates into the workplace where we don't want to show our vulnerabilities. 
And right. I think what you have discovered, what there's such strength in preserving other people's dignity. Yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly right. That it was important and rewarding for people to help each other. You know, we didn't have any kind of there was, there was no point system for helping right. somebody, right? <laughs> but I think people it was recognized. And I mean, you you knew, we all knew who would always jump in and who who you could count on to come up with with an answer that went beyond just here's the answer. But yeah. do you wanna do you wanna jump on a quick Zoom call and, and we can we can talk right. to each other? And and I think I mean you kind of hit on a point about the vulnerability mm-hmm. that comes with needing help. And so just as we needed to normalize helping each other, we also had to normalize asking for help and and making that socially acceptable. And it just, you know, I think we were in a, we were lucky in a way, and it was so easily explainable. 80% of the company had been there for less than four months at, at some point. And so, you know, when people say, oh, I don't know what's going on. Nobody does. It's fine. You're all, oh, that's right. You've only been here two months. Okay, great. You've been here two months and you already seem to know more than me. So I have hope that I'll get there quickly, you know? Exactly. So we're going to go to a break now, just a quick break. And I think what we're talking about ties into what people are going to hear in the break. Here at Ever Widening Circles, we recognized <laughs> that in this culture of people doing good in the world, you know, creating businesses that had something to do with the greater good, we recognize that everybody in that sphere was just little tiny points of light out there shouting into the darkness that they were here, that they had something that could be super helpful to others. And if we all stayed in our own little spaces all alone, we were never going to combat this, <laughs> this negative tidal wave that is going on. So we, we started something called the goodness, the conspiracy of goodness network. That's sort of like a, a social network combined with a personal development network where people who are wanting to see a better world can come together and be multipliers for each other's goodness to swap solutions and exchange all kinds of collaborations. So anyway, let's go to that break and then we'll come back and we'll talk about your journey a little bit more. Do you thrive on learning from and collaborating with others for the good that's in the world? And becoming a better version of yourself, both personally and professionally, every day, we have built something just for you. The Conspiracy of Goodness Network. You can be a part of the first networking platform that prioritizes personal and professional growth as we work together to make the world a better place. The Conspiracy of Goodness Network is a vetted platform of entrepreneurs, creatives, and professionals who are committed to making the future brighter for us all, people like you. On the network, you can ask questions and find help with projects, share trusted resources, request and attempt workshops, expand your network of thought leaders, and learn from the experience of others to catalyze your work, interests, and passion projects. This is a place where All of us who are doing something to improve the world, large and small, can flourish. The $35 a month membership fee includes attendance to exclusive monthly happiness hours, where you can hear from amazing speakers and influencers. It includes participation in monthly community challenges that will improve your own life and the world around you. 
you'll have access to the network's mentor match service to grow exponentially in your insight and decision making. And you'll get automatic discounts on all of our courses and events. So join us, co-conspirators for goodness around the world. Those who are doing anything they can to make the world a better place are coming together on this network to collaborate, and it is time we find each other. Go to conspiracyofgoodnessnetwork.com for a simple three-step questionnaire to apply to be a member today. Let's connect, collaborate, and change the future. Okay, we're back. And uh, Jordan, where we left off was we were talking about this system that you you had created, this culture that you had created around relationships. And that's something I'd like you to talk a little bit more about because what happened to everyone when the pandemic hit? Uh, for one thing, I think it was a leveling. It was the great leveling throughout society. There was nobody who was immune to COVID. There were no business leaders who knew who could tell the future, not one. Not one person, no matter how lofty their position was. So we were all in the flow of a great unknown together. And so a lot of the things that you already had in place were all you had to bring to the table to solve the problem, to get through that first two months. And you told me that you were right on the edge of disaster. Now, did your employees sort of self-organize to save things? Was it was it you that said, hey, we can... We already have the, you know, you guys are already invested in in online culture or, or or virtual workplace for 12 years. You obviously were way, way ahead of everybody who was going to brick and mortar businesses. So talk a little, little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, I I don't know that I would say they, it wasn't an emergent thought. I mean, I there was, I, I kind of trace back the moment that it's kind of sitting alone in front of my computer yeah. and thinking about, you know, what do I do? And sort of go throughout this idea of switching to virtual events. But as soon as I did, the network was in place and everyone, the relationships were in place that everyone could self-mobilize on what to do. So, you know, okay, uh, the the development team kind of understood, okay, this is where we're trying to go. We got it. Talk to to you in a few weeks. You know, the, the client support team, Understood. Okay, we're going to have to we're going to have to start shifting. We're going to have to start building up new new documentation and changing our patterns for supporting clients. I mean, supporting a client where they're on site and you've produced an app that everyone installs and then you're done and you move on is very different than a live event where you're the the infrastructure for all of the web live streams and things like that. It's a it's just a very uh, different requirement. And of course, the you know the sales team needed and marketing needed to adapt their explanation of what they do to this new way of doing things. Mm-hmm. And everybody kind of fed off everyone else. I mean, again, we used the the relationships to to feed the information back and forth. Okay. And you know it, it's worth noting too that this idea of relationships had always been intrinsic to what we were doing. So, like I said earlier, our original business was, apps for conferences. We produced these you know, trade show app and you could see the agenda and download a map. There were a lot of them. We had a lot of competitors. They're all doing basically the same thing. It's a little bit of a commodity business. Yeah. But what made our 
solution different kind of when we we said our unique value proposition was relationships that not only was it an app where you would look and you would see the map and you would see the different talks but you could use the whole site beforehand to see who else was going to be there to find people that you wanted to interact with set up meetings with them because we believe that humans are social animals this goes back like i said when i was reading Kevin Kelly's Hive Mind article. I was in social psychology. I was in graduate school for social psychology. And yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of, of needs. Of course. Yeah. Right? It's this idea that you kind of think of this pyramid. It's base of what everybody needs is you know, food and shelter and mm-hmm. kind of that their basic physical needs met. But right after their physical needs are met, that thing that comes next is is social needs, right? You need fulfillment, you need relationships, you need love. And so as a company, we recognize that in our product, that if we were going to provide something that went beyond what the other companies were providing, it needed to meet that need. And I think we we did it internally as well. So it was the whole, I mean, back to the hive mind, right? right? So you said it yourself. There wasn't some moment that you said, okay, team, we're going to go do this. The next purpose evolved. And that's what we have a great interview. If people want to look back in our archives, not very far, there's an amazing interview with Dr. Tamsin Woolley Barker, who's an evolutionary biologist who studies bees and and ant colonies and teaches the insights to businesses all around the world, big businesses. He has customers that are enormous globally known corporations. And they're looking at this, this hive mind way of thinking about how humans will do better. I want to run a a concept that she ran by me and I haven't stopped thinking about by you and see if you observe this in your own experience. So she reminded us that you and I, anybody who's a a business owner will go out and work very hard to hire the most creative self-starter we can possibly find. I mean, that's what we're looking for, right? We don't want anybody we have to micromanage. So then we work all this way. We hire the person and then we say, here's the system you're going to work in. And the system is all, you know, already there. And the very thing we hired them for, their self-starterness, their creativity and all that stuff goes goes unused because we just plopped them down in a system that somebody else invented maybe 15 years ago. So she reminds us that what we should be doing as leaders is creating a place where people can self-organize. And she has some really, really creating, you know, systems that are not, this is how we do it, but this is the intention that we bring to it, which is kind of what you did. I think without realizing it, you provided the culture, the flourishing situation, and then people to solve this huge problem of our business is going, going, gone. Right. I, I, bet you, I bet you you didn't have to create the whole systems. They they did themselves. Right, right. I would say every piece of it was certainly more than any individual could do. Right. Right. And I talked before about how the, the different teams deployed themselves right. and acted you know, autonomously to create what we ended up creating. I mean, it both pre-COVID and post-COVID, I mean, it, it was certainly more than I did, right? It was, you're right, it was hiring hiring good people who were who are creative and you know, self-starters. I mean, when we hiring in a pure remote workplace is a challenge, right? right? I, like I don't get to interview 
people. I, I can't ask people to come in for, you know, three or four interviews and then I right. take them out to lunch and things like that. I mean, all the things that you would normally do to, to hire somebody, you can't do it. And also I mentioned this, the global talent pool. Yes. So when we would post a job, I mean, we're posting it to the world and, you know, we get hundreds of applications and I don't, I don't know. I can't, I looked at a resume and everyone looks the same. So what we did is I would ask people to record a short video of themselves and it could be, you know, three to five minutes, just explaining something that tell me how they do something that they're passionate about. So, you know, if I were providing a video, I would say, here's how you hive a new, here's how you take bees and you create a new hive. And the thinking was, you just, you learn a lot from people when you listen to them talk. And I didn't want to have them, I didn't want to ask them a question about events or technology because I don't necessarily, I don't care if they know about events yet. The smart, creative people, they'll, they'll figure out a new domain quickly. That's not the important part. But having somebody that had something that they were passionate about, I mean, if you can't, if, if you can't come up with something that you've learned that you're excited to teach somebody else, that's that's just not the right fit for us, right? I mean, I, you, you, that's who you look for is the people who, you know, I don't could be gardening, it could be beekeeping, it could be sailing, it could, you know, it, it running, whatever it is. If I want someone who's going to geek out on whatever it is that they're passionate about, and then of course, part of it is can they take this highly specialized knowledge and translate it into words that someone who is not specialized can understand. And, uh, but that was, that was an invaluable tool to find interesting people. And also it was fun for me, right? I have, yeah. I got 50 oh short snippets God. where everyone's given their own little three minute Ted talk on something that they're passionate about. And I just get to sit there and watch it all. I think that is genius. I hope everyone listening to this podcast remembers that and offers it as a as a part of the solution because people are working from uh, well I've seen statistics where a good seventy percent who are working from home who suddenly went from to online work will stay that way when this yeah. whole thing blows over and that's a lot <laughs> and it you know I should I want to mention too that the video piece of that was critical so you know. It, you look at somebody's resume and you've got these words on the page, but being able to see them and I, there's problems intrinsic in it too, right? I mean, if you're, we have, we all have unconscious biases and, you know, if you're kind of, you know, somebody's race and, and gender and things like that, it can kind of influence. And so I think it's important to be cognizant of that and control it to the extent that you can and, and be aware of it. But when COVID hit, we had been using Zoom for our sales calls and our support calls for years, but we never turned the camera on. Oh, oh, oh I love this part. You, you and I right. had this talk. Talk right? about this. This is so fascinating. Please carry on. I think everyone always felt that it was intrusive maybe to turn on your camera. And I know that the sales team, when I first told them, okay, everyone, camera's on from now on, because if we're going into the virtual event business and we're going to tout that, you know, Zoom-like technology can be a replacement for an in-person trade show, we got we to walk the walk. We do it. And that, I remember my sales team was like, but I, I'm working out of my basement. And, you know, I, you know, Jonathan would have his Costco things of toilet paper on the shelf behind him <laughs> or whatever. 
And he'd be like, but, you know, are, are they going to think that we're, we're not professional because we're working from home? And I mean, at the time, it was like, you know what? We're all in this together, right? right? So, But the amazing thing was that when we turned on the cameras for that first time, and I started talking to clients that I had known for years, there was this magic moment of delight of like seeing each other for the first time. And I remember we there's almost like a giggle of like, oh, oh, hey, you. That, it's you? nice to meet you. <laughs> you know, and the relationships that we established were were just more meaningful. I mean, I, I would have conversations with people prior to that where you could only hear them. And it's, you know, you you do your song and dance and and it's all quiet. Did, are they are they still in the room? Are they mm-hmm. frowning? Are they bored? Are they excited? But once the camera went on, you just get so much more feedback. And you could see that the crinkle in their brow when you said something wrong. Oh, did I uh, looks like you're worried about that or or the right. look of boredom or the look of the lean in moment where you're like, ooh, oh, I got him. You know, this is this is something that we we can spend more time on. But it's not like I knew them. I mean, we've got millions of years of evolution that have gone into letting us read each other's faces, right? That w- just it's more than just the smile and the frown. I mean, there's there's so much you can tell from somebody, I guess. From a utilitarian perspective, there's so much you can tell from someone by looking at them while you talk to them and being able for them to look at you. But just, for, I guess, you know, it's back to this idea of relationships. And I just feel like I know somebody. I mean, you know, we're, I feel like I know you. I know, because but we're, you know what's see funny? Each other. And, you know, I feel like in our car ride, when, when you and I had that long talk while I was speeding along from various time zones, yeah. we couldn't. There was something going on that day. It was my, it was my internet or yours. Probably you mine. were speeding along on the, on the, yeah. on the, yeah. and in, the so, in the passenger seat. In the passenger yes, seat, that's but, right. <laughs> but remember, we had to turn the video off because yeah. it, it wasn't keeping up. And our, our conversation wasn't nearly as animated as this one. Yeah. Because I keep leaning forward and going, oh my gosh, you're blowing my mind. And you can see that without me. My right. podcast uh, producers are very big about me not muddying the sound quality by talking over <laughs> you or interrupting. But you can see my reaction and that makes it fun. Right. That makes it fun. So there's a few things I want to add to your observations there. You know, one of the things that I noticed, I- I'm very focused on finding the things that we all have in common. I like to go the opposite way of society. <laughs> I like to turn things on their head while everybody else is shouting about what we disagree about. I'm going, but wait a minute over here. And one of the things I noticed right off was that we saw other people's kitchens and guest bedrooms and they look just like ours. Right. And I, you know, it's funny, the, you mentioned it. I know our support team had as part of their weekly check-ins where the whole team would come together and they'd have everyone's on zoom and you got the, the Brady Bunch times, you know, times 12 layout. And they would, as part of each meeting, they would give home tours. And so it was one person each week would pick up their computer and walk around and say, you know, here's my, you know, my yeah. animate, you know, my collectibles. And this yeah. is where I sew and, you know, yeah. go, oh, don't look in there. You know, there's laundry on the bed. And, <laughs> and I think, you know, in the same way that you get to know somebody by looking at them, you get you get to know somebody by being welcomed into their home. It's so, so, so true. I remember the moment I started talking to other people's pets. 
Because, <laughs> you know, right. we have a house full of animals and, and we have the funny little voice that we talk to the cat in and all the stuff. And lots of people do. And eventually that just became, you know, someone's cat would hop up on the table or their dog would leap on their lap that I just started talking to their pets too. <laughs> yeah. And that's a, that's a connection. Yeah. When new people would join my company, we'd have these company meetings every once a week. And again, everybody on Zoom. And the way that I would ask new people to join is I would say, I want you to, everyone, tell your name, where you are physically in the world, you know, what you do for the company. And one silver lining of the COVID pandemic for you. And often you would get, you know, well, I found this job and, you know, that, that's been great. Yeah. And I found this to get other people or I got to spend more time with family, things like that. I think for an interesting silver lining, I hope for all of us will be that interacting people with people like we are now having Zoom calls and, and video calls has become more normative that we'll be able to have We've taught people how to connect across distances. So, you know, everyone says, like, we we don't want video calls to replace in person. I don't either. But to the extent that my parents live on the other side of the country and my brothers live on the other side of the country and I've got friends all over the world. And prior to the epidemic, I don't getting people teaching them how to use Zoom or whatever was but now everybody does. Like if you, everybody knows how to get on a video call. It's just part of it. And I hope that that will continue. That we'll continue to shrink the world, tighten up relationships that are physically remote. When this is all over, and that'll just become a lasting part of our world culture. Because I think that you, know, you get back. I, we've been talking about my organization and creating this healthy personality, but. I mean, that's, I said earlier, the same thing applies to countries. It applies yes. to to any group of people. If you can create healthy relationships and, and patterns, then you can you can create a, a healthy personality for that larger group. And I, I hope that that's what happens. And we, as leaders, it's it behooves us to, to if we're going to create anything, create systems that inspire that. Right. You know, like you're not not answering every single question, creating a system where this was where you because it, it does take some intention to do this. this. This society is so hooked on not looking vulnerable that unless somebody creates those systems with some intention, people are going to still stay in their corners for fear or whatever. You know, something that I, I also have noticed, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. What I do in my own circles towards that end is I started myself. I started with myself just to see how it would work. But I started going back to phone calls. I started really limiting the scope of anything I tap away with my fingers. Because the other person, because what I noticed, I noticed this between, here's how it started. I noticed it between my daughter and I. She's the CEO. She's She leads everything. She's an amazing, brilliant woman. But we had a lot more friction than I thought we would. And we didn't have a lot of friction in general before we started this business together. And I figured out that when you text somebody a quick message for your first sentences, they receive that text in the mood they're in, hmm. not the mood you're in. So I might say one sentence that I think can be very brief and very to the point because it's my daughter. And, but she, if she's just hung up the phone with somebody who's aggravated or, or whatever mood she's in, she's going to, well, why ever do you mean by that? You know, 
I don't mean anything. I was just trying to be brief. So I I just, I tried so hard to put emojis. That's why we all throw emojis everywhere. It's corny, but. Yeah, we're trying to imply intention. And so I just said, heck, if I have to create an email for somebody with six emojis to let them know that I'm smiling all the way through this email, forget it. I'm just picking up the phone. (laughs) Or now having a quick Zoom. There's nothing wrong with a five-minute Zoom. Yeah, no, I, I think there's a desire in business to avoid meetings, Right. There's the, I'm sure you've seen the memes, you know, if this couldn't, this, this, this meeting could have been an email. Right. And I get it. I mean, people try to, they need to protect their time, but I think you're right that the flip side of that is when you avoid talking to people, when you avoid having this interactive conversation with them, you lose a lot of context for, for what's going on. And it's there's a balance I think that you need that you need to hit. And I would, we've come to a place in our culture where calling somebody is considered rude, right? And I, I, someone picks up the phone. I'm like, are you crazy? Like, first off, it's, it's somebody in the hospital because that's the only reason I could think someone would call me without texting me first to say, is that you have a moment to chat or something yeah. like that, right? But I think it's. I think you're right that it's worthwhile, and and we did that uh, at the company as well. Where I would, you know, when Slack added the ability to video call somebody, I'd just video call them, and as often as not, they would be tied up, and they would just, you know, has to talk to me later. Mm-hmm. But um, but I think it is. You're right that it's valuable that the more frequently you can have interactive conversations where you're you're talking yeah. you're seeing short conversations you have to know when to end them right. you create a background yeah. of context yeah. that then can be used to interpret the text messages that might follow absolutely uh, i think that's a good trend that i i see in how we kind of heal some of the wounds that we've created by this world of just spontaneously tapping out anything and trying to be as brief as possible, where you lost all the context and and you catch people in whatever mood they're in. So, one of the things that you and I talked about, I think, did we talk about your notions about this thing called the digital nomad? So this is we probably did. I, you know, my I've written I, I've written it down, and I I know that I was writing as fast as I could during that conversation. So tell me about what your thoughts on digital nomads. Well. Part of the value that we got at our company from being a pure remote company was that we were untethered, unbound from physical location. So we realized pretty quickly that if I flip open my laptop and I go to work and at the end of the day, I close my laptop, I don't have to be anywhere in particular. I can soon be in my home office in Seattle or I can be in Lisbon or Amsterdam or I don't Thailand, wherever I want to be in the world. And, and we took advantage of that. In fact, it was kind of one of the selling points when we were hiring people is we would put, you know, be a digital nomad in the, the job descriptions to attract people who saw that as a value. And, and we did it a few times. You know, my wife and I rented out our house and spent three months traveling in Europe once and then we did a month uh, a van trip across the southwest and i would i would be back at the wherever we had happened to park tapping on my computer with my phone as the wi-fi my uh, co-founder and, and business partner i did quite a bit of it he spent three months in vietnam he spent three months in Colombia with his family and kind of similar thing and i think 
what's exciting is that maybe another silver lining of the COVID epidemic is so many companies now that used to require people to come into work have now experimented with remote working and decided that it 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 might work long term and are allowing employees to to work remotely and seeing it as as more than just normal and acceptable but maybe even desirable and as that shift happens it occurs to me that more people who maybe dreamed about living somewhere different for some short time or or longer time and experiencing the world will be able to do it and so i'm as i think of, so I, I left the pathable the company that i had uh, that i had started and in the event space. And as I'm thinking about the future, one of the ideas that I'm playing with is how do we allow people who are adopting this nomadic lifestyle, for lack of a better word, or long-term travel lifestyle where they relocate for some extended period of time to somewhere that's exciting to them. How do we allow them to continue to have social experiences? I mean, this is we talked about it before. Social, we're social animals. We need to connect. You know, we, my family and I, ended up renting an apartment in Lisbon for a month and a half a few years back. Yeah, while you were running an online business. Right, right. Now I would go to actually the time zones worked out great. I would uh, I'd spend the day with my family exploring the city or traveling, and then at you know four o'clock in the afternoon, which is you know eight o'clock in the morning back in the in the states somewhere, I would. Say okay, I'm going to work, and flip open the laptop, and right. you know, work until until there's something to sleep. That it was, I mean, magic experience, but it was a little lonely yeah. because we're, I mean, we're a close family, and we love spending yeah. time together. I don't speak Portuguese, and I'm yeah. in Portugal. Yeah. And how do you connect with people? How do you meet people either locally or other travelers, whoever it is? And so that's that's kind of where where my thinking is going now is what kinds of solutions can we come up for, with for people who are long-term travelers in you know or strangers in a strange land mm-hmm. who want to become a part of something who want to continue to nurture relationships where they are. You know, I think I would if you were asking me that question, how do we do this? I often get questions that I'm not sure the answer is, and I try and work wonder into the answer. So for instance, I've always been an early adopter of technology. So about 10 years ago, we were in South Africa with our children, traveling, 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 going to remote places in the Kalahari Desert. We always tried to find Wi-Fi once a day. And the time zone thing worked out just like you. So we had we had already digital technology in our office 10 years ago. So we could actually check our dental hygiene patients in real time on the internet. So we would spend the morning, it was a nine hour difference. So we would spend the day doing whatever we wanted to do with the kids. And then we would snuggle up in our beds with our laptops and connect up with the hygienist. And they could stick these internal cameras that we had already adopted into patients' mouths who were getting their teeth cleaned. And they could say, ah, John has this breaking tooth, Dr. Linda, take a look at it. What do you think? Is it a regular filling or a crown? And we did that for 14 days. We literally checked all of our patients from South Africa in the United States by doing exactly. Okay, so so the patients didn't have our healing hands on them. We weren't present totally. But this was such a wonder to 
everyone, that the patients thought it was the coolest thing. And so they were full of wonder. The hygienists were full of wonder. Chuck and I were full of wonder. So I think that as we go forward with these technologies, it might be hard to generate wonder from for the first digital natives, the generation 21 and younger. You know, there's no wonder in the internet to them. It just is. But for the rest of us, as we're creating customer experiences, as we're creating internal experiences for our teams, I think it's a good thing to pay attention to the wonder of being able to do lots of the things you and I have talked about today. Yeah, I would often use the word delight. Yes, um, delight, know, that's, a, that's what we're trying to do, right? Great. I, I think that the way, maybe the way that we originally connected was we had happiness managers on our team, right? And I think, I don't, I, I think somehow that was the, yes, the original yes. uh, connector. Um, but I think that the, I, I, I like I like the word wonder yeah. because it has yeah. a little bit of curiosity. It has discovery. Yeah. It has all kind of wrapped up into it. Yeah, I think I, I, I just love the direction this conversation has gone today, Jordan. I hope that everybody leaves this conversation with a bit of awe and wonder and delight, because I, I think. I think what we've talked about here is a possible view of the future for almost anyone. I, I love the digital nomad thing, of course, because I'm a global traveler. But but I think that you've d- you've done things like described how the interview process could be different. You've described how if we really solve problems as we go along with relationships in our business at the foundation, then they are there for us when we need them. Can't suddenly create them during the middle of a pandemic, right? I mean, there's a lot of things for people who are in their working lives and their family lives. I, I, I'm going to re-listen to this podcast interview to write the show notes. And I think I'm going to enjoy thinking about it through that lens too. Like what could we think about as, a, as families and in, in, in even, you know, extended families that, that we learned from the kinds of observations you made. So thank you so much for joining me. It has been a great, great pleasure. I learned a lot as well. Thank you so much for uh, for giving me the, opportun- the opportunity. So, so, Jordan, is there any way, or or do you want people to connect with your work somewhere? Are you kind of it? Are you semi retired right now? Are you in uh, waiting for the next next plan? I am waiting for the next plan to emerge. I mean, I talked about this idea of nurturing the idea of digital nomads, but it's in its nascent state right now. Yeah. So, if you know if people want to connect with me on LinkedIn, I will certainly announce what I do next there. Great. Just super. Well, I, anything that Jordan and I talked about, or we're going to be in the show notes. I'm pretty sure, I'm not absolutely sure, but I'm pretty sure this interview will come out, Jordan, as not just a podcast. It may come out as an article forever widening circles. We are switching to a new publishing schedule where Wednesdays are going to be an article written about the interviews that I'm doing on the podcast. We're in the top 25% of uh, podcasts in the world now quite quickly. Yeah, I really say. Congratulations. Uh, yes. And uh, if people want to help us get to the next level, our sites are, are not that far. We're pretty close to being in the top 10%. If people will go and rate and review the podcast, that'll get us up there faster because of course it gets pushed out all over by the uh, podcast um, podcast companies faster. So thank you so much for being here. You can find anything Jordan and I talked about in the show notes below, which will be also part of the Everwinding Circles articles if you go there to find this interview. Please remember that Everwinding Circles is there for you. In these hard times where all we hear is the negative news and the I don't know, division and chaos on social media, remember that that is not who we are. We are 
doers and givers and helpers like Jordan and I started out talking about. Most of the good people in the world want a better world for each other and their families, and they're working towards that in some way, large and small. So thank you for joining us, and um, I hope all these connections to goodness and progress will carry you through your week, and you'll start finding all the wonder and delight that Jordan and I were talking about. Have a great day. <laughs>